Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's Voices of E-Learning podcast episode. I'm J.W. Marshall, your host from MarketScale, and we have got a great episode planned for you today. Joining us are two guests, Susan Manning, the Chief Success Strategist at Credly, and Kevin Johnson, the Director of E-Learning for Seattle Central College. They are the co-authors of the second edition of Online Learning for Dummies, and that book has just been released. So we're going to dive right in, and I'm going to let Susan and Kevin introduce themselves and talk about their experience first, and then we've got some great questions lined up here to talk about the book. Susan, if you want to start us off and just give us a little background on yourself. Great. Thank you, JW. I started to work in higher education, actually in student affairs, um, a lifetime ago at this point, but I transitioned then into teaching. And while I was teaching English as a second language, I was asked to go back to school to square one with training and figure out how the college could move their literacy volunteer training online. That threw me into learning all about learning and teaching online and led me to meet Kevin. And so life progressed. And at some point I was teaching full-time. At some point I was teaching a full load for the University of Wisconsin at Stout and I was asked to join in on what was the first time called Online Education for Dummies. And I knew I needed a partner in that. Um, it was not a task I wanted to take on by myself. And who better than my buddy Kevin, who had just as storied a career in online learning. So that's how I got to this point um, and how I met Kevin. Thanks, everyone. Hi, JW. Appreciate being here. I started in e-learning years and years ago when I was 15 years old. I actually was a computer programmer for the University of Illinois programming Play-Doh terminals. If you don't remember those, they were these humongous machines that were built in the 60s from the University of Illinois. And they had, they were so ahead of time, ahead of their time. They had touch screens, they had chat, they had email. And uh, at the age of 15, I started volunteering for them. And then I asked if they needed any help and it happened to turn into a job. After that, uh, I graduated from high school, went on to college and ended up in San Francisco area during the dot-com bubble. And I was teaching full-time at, at a college and I really kind of naturally transitioned to online teaching. I first started taking my handouts and putting them on CDs for my students to save paper. And then as the internet became available while I was out there, I started having my day students uh, interact with my night students. And then I was brought back to Illinois where I started working with uh, Susan at the University of Illinois and at the University of Wisconsin, where we co-taught together and eventually got to the place where we were also uh, writing the book together. That's awesome. And tell us about, I guess, the first version of the book and what year did that come out? 2010. 
Wow. So 10 years to the day, uh, I would imagine a lot has changed in online learning from 10 years ago. Um, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what differences have you uh, seen in this uh, second version? You might be surprised that in the second version of the book, it's very similar to the first version. We really just had to clean up some of the references to technology, but the way that online learning is conducted is very similar today as it was 10 years ago. We we were ahead of the curve in terms of how we were describing what to expect in an online course, um, all the various components. Now, I will say, thanks to the pandemic, there are more people having to complete their studies online, or if they are professionals, uh, professional associations and training providers have had to pivot very quickly and offer instruction online. And I think a little more of that is happening in real time because the tools have developed so far and so fast. That's been really, I, I would say, the major shift. Um, but overall, the way that people learn online is the same today as it was when we described it 10 years ago. Yeah, I would agree. We actually, throughout the book, were like, wow, I was I was afraid I was going to have to talk about accessibility in a different way. And I reread the chapter and, and how we would want to rewrite it now. And there's not much different. We actually were kind of surprised ourselves to see how the foundational aspects of teaching and learning at a distance uh, is the same now as it was then. It takes a similar attitude uh, around learning new tools because just like in 2010, tools now are changing every day. Um, and um, it also takes a specific structure and, and concept and mindset for teaching online in regards to um, still meeting those instructional objectives, just choosing the tool that meets the objective in, in different ways. Absolutely. So let's kind of dive into some of the content of the book. What are learners, readers uh, going to take away from this book? I think readers are sometimes surprised at how detailed we are in terms of what to expect and what is expected of the learner. You know, the shift from you you do not go to class and sit passively. You have to be an active learner. And that means you need to know how to complete and turn in assignments at a distance. You need to understand how to communicate with various people you interact in online learning, whether it's the instructor or peers or whatnot. And so when you look at the book itself, the level of detail, I think, might surprise people. For me, I actually use the book uh, for two different audiences. So I use the book for students, but I also use the book for faculty. So for students, for example, uh, one of my coworkers a few years back was looking at a fully online uh, master's program, and I referenced the book. I was like, "Here, in you know these specific chapters, you can uh, learn about the questions you might ask when looking at a program, and what questions you might ask in regards to the quality of the program. What kind of uh, interactivity are is expected? What kind of student?" Um, interaction with the faculty, student-to-student interaction will be expected. Um, and my friend was able to use the book to ask very specific questions and was really 
very happy with the program that she chose based on being able to interview them. With faculty, I use this book to kind of teach them what we teach students. So when we tell students, we expect you to come in with this level of knowledge or be ready to be uh, interactive with peers, that helps inform faculty's design of their courses. So for me, uh, in my role as the director of e-learning, I get to actually use the book from both perspectives, um, from the student perspective and from a training uh, faculty perspective. And that brings me to another question. First, focusing on the faculty, what are some of the common mistakes that faculty make in as many are transitioning or have transitioned abruptly in 2020 to online learning? I'm sure there are a lot of mistakes, um, but what are some of those common, most common mistakes? I think faculty have made mistakes in rushing online without proper preparation. So they're not really sure what tools to use, how those tools work. And they don't necessarily understand the level of commitment and time it may take to adequately teach online. You can't just put your stuff up there and expect that students are going to understand what to do with them or the degree to which you want them to do it. And an, an example that comes to mind, a friend of mine lives down the street and around the corner and she teaches in an allied health area that typically is very face-to-face, -face, but she was sent online in a hurry. And the first week I helped her understand how to make an instructional video to show her students what she expected and, and how to handle the assignments. So I think faculty that were forced to move online without adequate preparation probably had the greatest challenges in that area. And and when you teach online, if you're teaching well, it's not only your instructor presence, it's also the design of the course. And I think for those faculty who were forced online because of the pandemic, they, they may not have understood the instructional design for online learning. They may have had a great face-to-face -face course, but making the change is a challenge. Kevin, what have you seen? I think that's a great um, transition to what I was going to say, which is I think one of the biggest mistakes made is the desire to replicate the face-to-face -face environment online. Mm -hmm. um, so they want that, they want a, the voice. And so we've had several faculty go immediately into um, just synchronous lectures. Um, and so students are staring at a screen and not that those can't be effective, but they're often not effective if they're the only way of teaching. I also think um, we are so used to using our voice to clarify information in the face-to-face -face environment that we forget that when we move to online, we often need to go into more details in the written instructions of our assignments. Uh, where I work, we use the tilted framework, which is transparency in learning and teaching. This is fairly new to the educational world, but not new to instructional designers and e-learning e folks who have been doing this for years. We know that if we want a student to complete an essay, we can't just give them a paragraph saying, write an essay about this topic. We have to really spell it out. What is it that we are wanting from the student? What objectives does this meet? And I've been fortunate enough over the last year to spend 
time in several student forums. And what we hear from students is, I'm not afraid of the work, but I just want to know what the work is. And in the online environment, we have to be more explicit about what that is. And sometimes um, our face-to-face -face handouts don't immediately translate online uh, in, in regards to getting the level of success that we want from students. And finally, the biggest, I think it's not necessarily a mistake, but it's a challenge, is accessible content. And a lot of that is because institutions need to have support for faculty to learn how to make their content accessible. Um, so that not only is it online, but it is online in a way that can be accessed in a variety of ways, including things like screen readers and contrast, um, color contrast being correct so that people who have vision issues can, can see the content. Um, so those are kind of some of the things that I think. And the other thing is the, um, and not as much now as back in the day, but the bells and whistles. We often want to use a tool because we like the bells and whistles of the tool, but it doesn't in any way, shape, or form align with the objectives. And so we're just using a tool because students think it's fun, but that doesn't mean learning is occurring because the tool isn't aligned with the objectives. Yeah, and it seems like it's a fine line between engagement, which is so important in online learning, and bells and whistles just to have bells and whistles that aren't adding to the instructional design of the course. Um, that, that seems like a balance we're uh, learning as quickly as possible here in 2020. Yes, you should always start with the objectives first and let the objectives drive the tool choice so that um, you can make sure there's alignment. Otherwise, when you let the tool drive, that it will align those objectives. Absolutely. And it seems like there's some parallels, too, in, in the broader world. of um, We work with a lot of uh, B2B salespeople um, at market scale, and they're used to face-to-face -face interactions, and now they're having to host Zoom meetings and uh, put on webinars that maybe they're not getting that feedback. And so... Um, talk about maybe lifelong learning as it applies to uh, adult learning and what should uh, adult learners be really <laughs> thinking about and why should they be reading this book probably at the top of their book list uh, here at the end of 2020? Well, I think, first of all, not just related to the pandemic, but if you've watched what's happened in the last 10 years, we really have moved to be a culture here in the U.S. at least where you constantly have to be reskilling, upskilling, retooling. It's not just the rate of change, the acceleration of change and technology, uh, but well, actually, I think that is the primary driver. When you look at how work has changed, there's no doubt that professionals need to be constantly learning. Some of those professionals are going to get this on the job. Uh, if, if you work for a huge corporation, there might be an educational program that you are logging into, whether you're doing it asynchronously or live. But I think some of the, the business travel that got impacted by the pandemic, that was sent online. And so adults are, without a doubt, they're expected to know how to learn and to know how to handle these tools and strategies. Where our book addresses that is that we looked at what we had been saying for fairly traditional higher education 
and worked in, oh, by the way, if you were thrown into online learning thanks to this pandemic, or if you are an adult learner who now finds you no longer need to go to Chicago for an all-day workshop on this topic, but instead you get to do it from your home, here's what you can expect and here is what is expected of you. Absolutely. And that kind of brings it full circle back to what are the, the misconceptions or the mis- mistakes that a online student can avoid? Uh, how can they be more prepared, engaged, and, and really own their learning uh, and not just expect it to all be on the instructor? Well, that's a major shift, too. When you are moving online as a student, less of that falls on the instructor's shoulders and more falls on your own. I think first and foremost, where most students fail is a lack of organization and time management specifically. So you look at a course, you see what's due, and you understand you can't wait until the last week to participate. It doesn't work that way. That, I think, is the greatest challenge. I would totally agree. Yeah. I think our students still, at some point, see online classes as easier, and then they um, sign up for an online class and they realized how much time they're putting in is significant and not, it shouldn't be more than what a face-to-face uh, class is expecting, but um, it should be, you know, similar. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. And um, also, yeah, the lack of uh, organization and structure. I mean, for right now, we're seeing this across the board. Like we said, because of pandemic, all schools are online. And, um, you know, with college students, especially community college students who are experiencing being kind of solely on their own for the first time, maybe not having the support systems that they're used to having, including, you know, um, a parent or guardian coming in and helping them wake up and get out of bed and get to school on time and stuff like that. These kind of skills are absolutely necessary for online. You must look for patterns in what your instructor is expecting of you. You must micromanage your calendar. I am going to sit and look at um, my class every day at this time. I'm going to log in. I'm going to read. I'm going to research. On Wednesdays, I'm going to go read what my peers have said and respond. And um, that takes a lot of executive function that um, some folks are just not used to yet. I also want to make a confession that when I was a student, when I was a college student, I might have attended a few classes where I pretty much showed up, listened to whatever the professor said, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 10 o'clock. I probably did the readings, but that wasn't it. You know, I mean, or that was it. There wasn't a whole lot expected of me beyond that. And now I think we understand how important active learning is and practice that you're more likely to be expected to do something between classes. So where Kevin said you shouldn't be putting in more time than you would have in a face-to-face class, I was thinking, well, that kind of depends because I didn't put much in. (laughs) There you go. Well, and and even I remember back, I'll make my own confession, uh, there were some classes you figured out after a first couple of sessions that you didn't even have to attend live for all those because you knew what you had to put in, you know, to get through the course or to get what you wanted to get out of the course. 
And and now you, it's really tough to just not show up to an online course because it's almost more noticeable in a, in a weird kind of way um, that you're not there or that your camera's turned off and you're not paying attention, which is probably more likely the case. Um, and so you really do have to go uh, oh, beyond, you know, mm-hmm. above mm-hmm. and beyond sometimes in the online format. I think maybe a silver lining we've heard reoccurring on our podcast here is that this uh, transition has actually been, uh, while difficult for some students to transition to, it's been very helpful for others that are maybe more shy or sitting in the back of the classroom that they feel like they've got uh, a better chance to succeed in the online learning environment. Is that something that you've seen as well? Absolutely. In real life, I am very quiet. Kevin is actually an introvert as well. Online, we blossom. Yeah, it's interesting. I think for students, it provides a lot of opportunity. I think I'll be honest in saying that uh, it's gone to it's gone both ways in regards to reputation for online learning. The pandemic has caused um, kind of this opposite uh, spectrum experience, right? Um, because faculty weren't ready. It, for those that had never taught online yet, now they're forced to do it. You know, those students may have not had necessarily the most positive experience perpetuating the stereotype sometimes that online learning isn't as high of quality. However, for those that have experience in online, that understand the instructional design process, I have found that my students actually know me better than they know their faculty in their face-to-face class. They know their peers better. And my evaluations tell me how much they appreciate that, that they did not get in the face-to-face environment because they might be one of those that sit in the back of the room and not engage and not raise their hand or not raise their hand fast enough Mm. um, uh, compared to their, their peers. That was my story. I couldn't get the words out fast enough when I was in a face-to-face class. Even in my doctoral program in seminars, I was just run over by people who thought quicker. Whereas online, I have time to think, to compose, maybe to edit before I send out that message. And I think a pleasant side effect of being online when you're in a class with a good instructor is that as an introvert, you get just as noticed as the extroverts. It, it all happens at the same time or, or in even, in, in even doses, I should say. I think for new learners or learners who lack confidence, that can be very powerful because the faculty faculty can really have a positive influence by noticing their work and their contribution. Absolutely. And I think we've also seen a trend towards um, more personal interaction via virtual mediums like Zoom than uh, traditionally, especially college students, would go in to see a professor. Um, was intimidating for many students. But uh, the walls have kind of come down in this 2020 virtual environment where everyone is much more willing to be on camera from their laptop or their phone, in their office, in their bedroom, in their uh, bathroom, whatever room they can find some quiet in. And and that seems like another silver lining that hopefully prevails as we move into 2021, this uh, accessibility of the expert, of the professor, of the instructor, uh, connecting with the student, whether that's one-on-one or in small groups. It definitely has humanized the experience. 
but I can tell you that one of the biggest complaints from our faculty is right now, students not turning on their cameras. And what we found is when the faculty member models and openly expresses and provides an introduction to a safe space, and that then um, it happens. Um, and we're finding more and more that um, there just needs to be that conscious introduction that this is a safe space that all of you is welcome here your kid sitting on your lap is welcome in our classroom your cat walking around across the keyboard is welcome in your classroom um, and as long as that prompt is out there then the cameras are coming on which is great and that's one of the things that i love about what's happened is i not only get to know my my students but i get to know them uh, in a much different way than i ever got to know them prior to now. Absolutely. I want to shift gears a little bit um, and talk about the length of an online class. Um, I know for the, the standard 30 or 45 or 60 minute classes, there might not be much change, but those that were doing, let's say, all day trainings in the corporate world, the adult learners, or those that were doing blocks um, in college or high school even of uh, you know 90 minutes up to three or four hours, um, I think a lot of professors quickly found out in the spring that doing a four-hour, three-hour, you know, class online is probably not the most efficient use of everyone's time. Um, is that something uh, that you guys have a, uh, any kind of advice uh, for instructors on class time uh, in, in a virtual world? <laughs> uh, I would say, how long do you want to sit as as an instructor, I don't want to be on four hours continuously. Even if I were in a classroom with you, chances are I would break up that time by having you do various activities. So learning is received better when it's broken into small manageable pieces and organized in the right way. And I think that goes back to what I said that one of the mistakes is not recognizing that instructional design has to change when you go online. So for those longer courses that had to move to a virtual event, it's probably just as important to break or more important to break up the time into activities and then decide how long do you really have to be online? What can be done offline and then brought in? Yeah, I would agree. Um, I am also currently the chair of the e-learning council for the state of Washington, and um, our meetings are quarterly, and they take a f usually two full days once a quarter, or once, uh, yeah, once a quarter in the year. And, um, you know, that group actually decided that they, because of time and their time right now during the pandemic, they decided that they wanted to continue with all day meetings uh, because they didn't want to split them up. Other councils in the state decided to take that and do um, four two hour meetings um, versus one eight hour meeting. Our council decided not to, um, but in order to make it fun, interactive and have knowledge transfer, um, I took almost 10 hours of time to do exactly what Susan was saying. I 
built the agenda and it took me 10 hours, uh, not in one setting, but over the course of a month or so to really chunk the, the information that I was presenting to, you know, consciously put in breakout rooms. So they were talking with each other and not listening to just me for six hours at a time, um, putting in interactivities where they were, um, writing notes in, um, a wiki document and things like that because again um what is the purpose and even with an agenda versus instructional objectives you can still follow the instructional design process instead of objectives you say what is the purpose of the meeting right what is what is it that you're trying to accomplish and then you plan towards that based on the environment, the restrictions you have, the time that you have. So some instructors don't have a choice, um, even when they move online as to what their timing is, but they can still take these strategies that Susan had mentioned in regards to chunking, sequencing, and, uh, and align that with their objectives and the tool that they have available to them to, to make learning still occur. Um, if you can chunk it out, that's great. Um, a lot of times our instructors have gone from a single day of class to spreading it out over the course of a week. Um, it all has to do with the restrictions that are placed upon them based on um, do they need to have that knowledge for something else they're going to do in two days from now, or is a week okay for them to spread that out? Yeah, and some would even say that the cognitive load of eight hours of instruction uh, is better parsed out over those chunks, you know, day after day to increase retention and things like that. So obviously there are times when that's just not possible given the confines of the course and the timing, but definitely something to consider for instructors. Um, next, I'd like to transition into the hybrid learning. Um, now you're seeing a lot of uh, workplaces as well as uh, institutions having some students in class and some students online. Um, what has been your experience with the hybrid learning model? Uh, simultaneous hybrid models have been, um, you know, pretty good from a safety perspective, and I've definitely seen them used. Um, I think they are often sometimes challenging, and um, uh, they can also cause, in the higher ed world, um, and Susan, you can tell me if you've seen this, but in the higher ed world, we've seen where that model actually kind of starts to butt up against faculty contracts as to whether or not they're developing one curriculum or two curriculums. But as far as effectiveness, um, you know, when you have a space that is normally, you know, so big and ha holds 30 students, but now with social distancing requirements, a one to six foot um, space between, you know, a six foot space between students, there's no way you can have 30 students in that. What's helped with that is it allows for students to rotate into the classroom on different days and still get that personal face-to-face -face connection with the instructor that they may be wanting while also not missing class on the days that they're not in school. So it definitely has its benefits. Um, in regards to um, its use. Again, it takes a different instructional design model for the instructor to know that if I'm demonstrating that to those that are sitting in the class, how do I bring in those that are um, at a distance to see my modeling, to feel like they're there and, mm -hmm. and things like that. So strategies like 
I'm going to do the same lecture three times and rotate students in, or I'm going to have an overhead camera to look, look at what I'm doing, those kinds of things. Kevin, I don't know if you were at the University of Illinois when this happened, but I distinctly remember a conference on campus. I was a speaker and it, there was a live audience and people were fielding questions to me, but there was also a, a call-in audience, if you will. I don't remember yep. what tool we used. Anyway, there was a facilitator who's, or a moderator who specifically took questions from both audiences. And that person was able to say, Susan, we've got a question from Nan online. And what facilitated inclusion is the, the bottom line. So those people who otherwise might have seemed like disembodied attendees were brought into the learning that was occurring at that moment with, with all people. I think it'd be enormously challenging to be faculty right now and have to pay attention to the people that are in front of you face-to-face -face and those that are online. That's really splitting one's attention. I don't think I would do very well without <laughs> a third party keeping me honest, you know? Yeah, the University of Illinois is still doing that, actually. One of my friends is there and is responsible for being that third party. His role is to go in and set up the cameras and get the live event going. But a lot of faculty don't have that that production person available. I do remember using, um, back in the day when it was called Illuminate, it's now called Blackboard Collaborate, and I would have a wireless mic on me and I would have a uh, lapel mic on me, and then I would have a handheld mic. And as I lectured, I always lectured um, projecting my PowerPoint through uh, Illuminate at the time. And as I walked around the classroom, I would ask students to ask questions using the microphone. And then if students online had questions, we could all hear them. So there was that ability. But that, you know, this is, I'm someone who, is very comfortable with doing that, um, especially if faculty were not doing that prior, um, learning that kind of level of tech along with trying to figure out what you're going to do curriculum wise mm -hmm. could be quite a bit. And so there is a balance to also understanding your own limitations as a faculty member. Absolutely. And I think we've even seen it where uh, the on-site students are also logged in online so they can see the chats and the questions from the online students um, and even ask some of them uh, if the professor's doing it all by themselves and not able to monitor the chats and things like that, um, which has brought about even more community amongst the students. Um, so uh, there's ways to do it, but it, but it is difficult. It's also helped us bring in um, interpreters uh, that that we could so now we have a bigger pool of interpreters because oftentimes the need is bigger than the number of employees that you have access to to be able to come to a live class and do asl interpretation and so um uh, what we've done that where the student who needs the asl interpreter is logged in the interpreter doesn't even have to be on site or isn't on site and is logged in and um we have uh, a the instructor's computer also logged in with the instructor mic'd. The instructor doesn't have to do anything but talk into the mic as as they're doing what they're doing, and the interpreter can uh, provide ASL interpreting even from a distance. So it has definitely provided some great 
resources and solutions to instructional problems. Absolutely. And that was one of my last questions is the accessibility of experts. Um, I know for some K-12 schools just last week, we were talking about teletherapy and telehealth and how that's bringing experts into especially rural communities, that it's tough to get those experts to come on site. Um, and business schools wanting to bring in, you know, a business leader to give 30 minutes of that two hour time, uh, you know, slot uh, is tough for them to lose half a day or a full day, but they can call in through a, a Zoom or a meeting uh, platform and win their expertise. Maybe talk a little bit about other things you've seen as far as accessibility of experts and connecting, uh, you know, from around the, the country, around the world. Even before we got to doing things in a live, synchronous way, faculty used to get other faculty to come in as a guest lecturer, even if the lecture was a document that you read and then you could do a Q&A over time around the concepts. So I think technology really has enabled that sharing and decentralization of knowledge. So you can find people from around the world, as you said, to come in uh, and share unique insights and additional applications of what you're teaching. Do you still have people come in your course as guests? I do. I have a guest lecture every quarter for my course, and I also serve as a guest lecturer in multiple courses um, every year. It also allows the student to be the guest lecturer, right? Like our technology now, the fact that um, we have portable devices such as our phone, our iPads and that um, at at our disposal, right? That almost every one of our students has a phone. It allows them to be the expert. So it allows a student that is in a um, science class to actually take their phone outside and explore and videotape that and bring that back to the class, uh, even if the class is virtual, by uploading that video. So it really does allow um, faculty to connect with other experts, no matter where they are around the world, but it also allows them the freedom to let the students be the experts and share, which is also really uh, fun and engaging and something that wasn't possible in the traditional everyone's in the classroom together environment. So uh, that's definitely another engagement tool for instructors to to think through. Uh, I want to switch gears one last time, and then I know we're running low on time, um, and talk about this new phenomenon, or maybe it's not so new, um, of micro-credentialing, uh, especially for our adult learners. Um, but even college students now are picking up extra micro-credentials to prepare for the job. Uh, world that is ever so changing. Um, could you talk just a little bit about that transition and maybe how this pandemic has accelerated the need and the uh, use of micro-credentials? In the context of higher education, usually a micro-credential is very skill-specific and is a way of, in a digital form, recognizing that the student has particular skills that have been validated and assessed that they can take into a new employment situation or in a practical application. As I said, in higher education, micro-credentials focus on a skill. It might be granted at the end of a course or at the end of a series of courses. What employers find helpful about them is that if, if I say that Kevin has a micro-credential in a certain aspect of instructional design, for instance, 
then I'm putting my name on that, that I have assessed that and validated it. And employers are more likely to know what someone is able to do as a result of that. And in a professional sense, lots of our associations or even within corporate learning, they need to know what professionals know and can do. If I work for a huge corporation, I might take, instead of calling it a micro-credential, it might just be called a digital credential. So this alternative recognition is digitized, but it can be used by my employer to make team assignments or deployments based on a specific talent that I have. And this is uh, growing more and more popular and, and more and more useful for the management of talent and for professionals to showcase what they're able to do. For us, we use micro-credentialing to credential faculty development opportunities. We use these to recognize the work that faculty have done. We share them not only with the faculty so that they can take it with them and put them on their uh, resumes and e-portfolios, but we also share them with the administrators as a way of congratulating faculty for uh, their faculty development efforts. At first, I was very nervous about um, this from a perspective of how faculty would perceive this. And it just goes to show how much adults even like gold stars, because not only did they appreciate the recognition, but they appreciate having a structure and a system in place that not only rewards them or recognizes their work, but also outlines the work that they had to do in order to earn that. Um, that is that external sharing with others. So when they share it, they can say, oh, in order for Kevin to earn that badge, he had to attend this course, submit this, you know, uh, an accessible syllabus or some other artifact fact to, um, in order to earn that. So, we found it very effective in promoting and recognizing faculty for their their efforts. That's great. And, and it seems like there's also a component of this shift to performance outcomes over just learning outcomes, that uh, it's not a passive, I attended this seminar. It's a, I've learned how to do this and demonstrated that I could do it. I have that skill now, and here's my credential. Um, is that something you're seeing as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, think of how often students may have graduated, gone into the workforce, and they didn't know how to work an Excel spreadsheet, for instance. Or they said on their resume that they were excellent at working with others in a collaborative manner, but there was no proof and they got on the job and they disappointed the the organization. So by shifting to real performance then you and documenting it with the digital credential you're much more likely to get somebody who really has the skills and can start working right away and in the classroom we've kind of turned that exact same concept into kind of a gamification process where in order to move on in the class you have had to earn a certain digital credential um, like a badge uh, but that to earn that, you've had to show and demonstrate the skill. And then once you've done that, the next level opens up. And then that becomes kind of this gamification of the classroom that really helps encourage students move forward throughout their learning. 
Absolutely. Well, we've got time for one last question. Um, and this is probably my favorite. Um, I, I, as my audience knows, I'm, I'm calling this 2020 the, the dawn of the golden age of education, of learning. I really feel like this is the beginning of greatness. And the wrong question is on-site versus online. Uh, the right you know, question is, you know, good on-site and good online and putting them together. What do you feel is that the future of e-learning, but even just the future of learning, where is this going in 2021 and beyond? For us in Washington, I'm going to speak to the state of Washington because of my role as the chair of the e-learning council. We actually just submitted a proposal to add four new modality codes to the statewide student coding manual. What does that mean? That means that we have found that some of the ways we've pivoted in this past year to different modalities, not only um, hybrid, but synchronous only, synchronous plus asynchronous online. We've come up with so many creative ways that we have proposed formal coding of these so that um, in the future, even once the pandemic is over, faculty will be encouraged to have different modalities to teach their course. And it also provides an opportunity to share with the student what it is that will be expected of them. So the modality code will actually say your lab will be on site at the campus, but your class will be online. And that online will either be synchronous or asynchronous depending on the new modality code. So for us, we're already seeing a shift of how this is going to change the future of education uh, beyond the pandemic. I'm going to answer a little more globally. I think it has forced us to look at what does it mean? How do we help people learn? If you are in the teaching role, what do we know about how people learn and how can we then package instruction together? so that it assists that learner in meeting the objectives. It's just good old instructional design, whether it's applied in a face-to-face -face or in an online environment. So revisiting, going back to the roots, how do people learn? How do we take what we know about people, how people learn, and how do we then package together instruction? And I think from the learner's side, they may not be as aware of what it means how the instructional design is impacting them, but having a truer sense of owning the process makes for a stronger outcome. You know, you, you get out of the situation what you put into it. Yeah, and we've also seen it break down barriers about people's perceptions of online learning, and not only just online learning, but, you know, access to learning. Uh, many of the tech companies here are thinking, do we really need to go back to an office? Because it's showing that as long as you have good design, as long as you have that motivation, location doesn't matter. And that includes learning as well. And I said this was going to be my last question, but you've brought on one more. Um, how have the learners changed? Have the learners changed in the last 100 years, 50 years, 10 years? Um, obviously, uh, attention spans of watching videos, there's some best practices around that. That wasn't something that maybe existed a few decades ago. Have there been any 
key changes in learners, especially with these new generations of uh, Z, uh, Generation Z, uh, that you've seen kind of coming up through the ranks? I would venture to say yes. The younger learners do come with different expectations, different experiences, different gifts and talents, and some different deficits. Whereas you take a learner who is in her 50s or 60s, her experience was probably very different and and that mindset is is different as well. So yes, there have been changes and I think faculty have adapted for the most part. Certainly those who support faculty and help them understand what's expected and how to work the tools have made great progress like Kevin's work. And and to me, the bigger challenge is the potential to have those really young learners who bring new mindsets together with older learners who may have a more traditional bent toward education. As a parent of a, of a 13-year-old, <laughs> I'm seeing, you know, my 13-year-old work completely independently on being able to open up the, la- the laptop that the school district provided him, log in, get to class on time. Now, actually doing the work is completely different, right? He still needs a lot of micromanaging to actually do the work. But to actually be able to use the tools, I'm not having to point everywhere and what to click on and all that. So students are coming into the college a little bit more prepared. I will say that as a person who works for the most diverse college in the state of Washington, there's still a lot of other barriers, you know, access to internet, access to equipment. But um, the students in the K-12 system come better prepared because they're using these technologies in the K-12 in a way that they've never used before. Even prior to pandemic, if the school did have um, equipment, it was a computer lab. It wasn't something that the student was often taking home with them and being um, expected to engage with independently, and now they are. So at some level, students are coming into the higher ed classroom now expecting more from faculty because of their ability to um, utilize the different tools, their phone, the computer, tablets, and, and other devices. So it's been kind of interesting because I don't know if we'll ever be able to keep up with that. Yeah, and there even seems to be a shift in learner expectations at all levels from the spring to the summer to the fall, where uh, learners were much more forgiving in the spring with this abrupt transition. Uh, over the summer, they get, the expectations went up a little bit, and by the fall, they expected everything to be you know perfect, and, and that's probably not realistic, but I don't think those expectations are going to go the other way going into this next spring and this next academic school year. So it really is um, uh, a hard job that instructors, administrators have had in 2020 to say the least, but uh, it's probably not going to get much easier in the the short term until we catch up with that professional development. Um, That is over all the time that we have uh, for today's session. We are going to, there's more questions to ask and uh, more to talk about in the book, I'm sure. So we're going to have to have both of you on uh, again in the spring for uh, an update on uh, the state of uh, e-learning and uh, online learning for sure. But thank you so much, Susan, for joining us today. I'm happy to have been here. And thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us. Thank you, DJW. I appreciate being here. 
And thank you to everyone out there in our audience listening. Uh, we appreciate you listening to today's episode as well as going back and listening to past episodes. And uh, we look forward to seeing you uh, next time. Thanks again and always keep learning. Thank you.